Hi, I'm Millie Thomas, an eating disorder recovery coach. We've created this podcast to raise awareness about all types of eating disorders and help dispel some of the many myths and stigma that unfortunately still surround them. I would have given up my entire bank savings. I would have given up my job. I would have given up all my friends just to be thin. It feels like it's like a drug. You know it's bad because you know like this is hurting me, but it somehow makes you feel like you're doing something right. I thought that thinness was going to change my life. I thought it was going to make me happy. I thought most of all, and this was very important, I thought it was going to get me love. This is the End Eating Disorders podcast. Why can't I get joy from anything? Frequent thing they heard, the nursing staff heard was it was it was when they whispered in the, the ear of the patient when they're really doing it tough. I reckon you can do this. You know, I believe you're going to get there. The eating disorder cannot be more powerful than you are because you give it its power. It's a part of you. It took half of my life, my eating disorder, and it literally nearly took my life. But we, we've seen recovery in in kids, in teenagers, in adults and in the elderly. So there's absolutely uh, hope. There is hope at endad.org.au. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, I have the amazing Hope Virgo with me. Now, Hope is the author of Stand Tall, Little Girl and a multi-award winning international leading advocate for people with eating disorders. Hope helps young people and employers, including schools, hospitals and businesses, to deal with the rising tide of mental health issues, which affect one in four people and costs employers between 33 and £42 billion annually. She has been described by Richard Mitchell, CEO of Sherwood Forest Hospital, as sharing a very powerful story with a huge impact. Hope is also a recognised media spokesperson, having appeared on various platforms, including BBC Newsnight, Good Morning Britain, Sky News and BBC News. Hope is the founder of the hashtag Dump the Scales campaign, which put eating disorders on the UK government's agenda. The campaign has gone from strength to strength, making change happen on a national scale. Wow, you've certainly achieved a lot, Hope. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Um, and I don't really feel like I have either. <laughs> I feel like, yeah, I'm one of those people that's like, I'll only feel like we've done it when it's when everyone's accessing treatment, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I completely, completely <laughs> understand. But I think sometimes we need people who are standing on the outside going, you have achieved a lot and you should be proud of yourself. But I, I'm very much like you in terms of always looking to the next thing and always looking at yeah. what can we achieve next because there is so much <laughs> that needs to, be, um, needs to be accomplished. Yeah, definitely. So I'd like to begin with you giving our listeners an insight into your eating disorder journey, a little bit of an overview. Yeah, sure. Um, so I developed an eating disorder when I was about 12, 13 years old. Um, so at the time, I didn't realize I had an eating disorder um, and it was a bit of a coping mechanism to life. It kind of gave me this real sense of purpose and value. And a big thing for me was it helped me to switch off all of the emotions that I didn't want to feel. So I was sexually abused as a child and just found life quite challenging to navigate in certain situations. And I think sitting with the uncertainty around what was going on around me, sitting with that heightened emotion, I was always looking for a way to kind of fix it. And the other thing about abuse is when you when you go through some form of abuse, you end up sitting with these feelings that there's something categorically wrong with who you are, and you have to change that. 
but the reality is in kind of this society is you don't need to go to abuse to feel that way. Anyone could feel that there's something wrong with themselves and they're then trying to fix this thing, trying to feel good enough, trying to feel okay, trying to sort their emotions out, distract themselves, everything like that. And for me, all of this came out in um, the eating disorder anorexia. Um, and so for me, it was all wrapped up in kind of food restriction and obsessive exercise. And I ended up hiding it for about four years. I think we all know eating disorders can be so secretive and you do what you do to hide every single thing that you're going through and every single behavior. And throughout that four years, although at the start, I always think it made me feel better and made me feel safe. There was this kind of part way through that four years when I gradually began to realize that actually what I was doing wasn't making me feel any better. And I just wasn't doing quite enough for the eating disorder. So I was then sitting with a lot of this guilt, a lot of this shame and kind of feeling more and more trapped in this kind of spiral of negative behaviors, but not knowing that I was doing anything wrong kind of really. And I remember the narrative I'd always tell myself was like, if I just do one more day of this, everything will be fine. Everything will work itself out and kind of kept going back to that kind of time and time again. Um, eventually, I uh, my school got in touch with my mum and I went to uh, the Children's Adolescent Mental Health Services here in the UK and <clears throat> did about six months there. But throughout that whole six months, still wasn't able to accept that I had an eating disorder and needed that extra support. And then eventually, after six months, got admitted to a mental health hospital and spent about a year kind of learning in the hospital about my recovery, about food, around exercise, around emotions. Um, and I think for me, a big thing was understanding the eating disorder in more detail, understanding kind of what it was doing for me and giving myself other coping mechanisms so that when life felt really challenging, I had these other things that I could fall back on instead. Um, and then, yeah, pretty much since then, it's, I've been in like an ongoing state of recovery. I, I think... Over the last 14 years, kind of since I was discharged, I have had moments when I thought I was fully recovered. Mm. And then I think like a lot of people with eating disorders, we settle at these kind of points around where we still have kind of food rules, we still have belief systems in place. Um, and I think for me, kind of strangely, during the pandemic, I had so much more time because I wasn't traveling with work and was kind of sitting with a lot of this, I guess, like the uncertainty and fear that everybody was sitting with. And I was trying to work out kind of what I wanted to do moving forward with my own recovery. And I always knew that I wanted to stay well, but I kind of had all these realizations over the pandemic where it was like, actually, do you know what? I don't want to have a life where there's any food rules, where any of that's kind of dictating my day to day. And so a huge thing now for me is kind of pushing and challenging myself around any other kind of beliefs and fears and things like that. Um, mm. And it feels uncomfortable in places. I think with all of this sort of stuff, it always mm. does because you're going into the unknown. Mm. But the more I do it, kind of the easier it gets. And I'm I'm one of those people that actually do believe that people with eating disorders can fully recover. But a lot of it, I think, at the end of the day, like comes down to you as an individual, kind of pushing that and understanding the eating disorder and learning to communicate and just yeah, being really honest with yourself and those around you. I think the key, one of those key things that you just said there is that honesty, not only with yourself, but those around you. I think that is just so, so important. Unless you're being true to yourself and being honest with yourself, you're only going to get to a certain point in recovery. Yeah, I think so. And I think a big thing for me was that honesty with the accountability, isn't it? 
so having people around you that you're yeah that you can be accountable to and that you can be like do you know what I'm, I'm finding today really hard or can you check that I've had enough of this and I think for me like a big thing with the, my recovery was and I'm sure others will relate to this like you get so much guilt in that recovery journey and then the guilt kind of amplifies when you challenge yourself with food and fear stuff and so then you're like sitting with that guilt and you're like what do I do do I and so having people around you, I think, in that sense as well, to help alleviate the guilt, whether it's through distraction, whether it's through just reminding you why you're doing it, I think, again, can also can also help be helpful. Yes, I do uh, something with clients where I get them to do their what am I fighting for list because you've got to remember your why. Yes, I agree. I think when you know your why, you can just get there somehow um, and you can sit with the thing. I think for me, yeah, a massive thing. And even, to be honest, actually, throughout my whole journey, a huge thing has been focusing on those motivating factors. I remember when I was in treatment, we um, spent so much time kind of writing these cue cards where you'd have your motivations written down. And at the, like back then it was things around traveling. It was going to uni, like I wanted to have children. So kind of all of these factors were there. And then I remember like in the pandemic, it became more about actually, do you know what? I'm now at another stage of my life. I want to be able to have that spontaneity back. I want to be able to, go for a cake if I want to that sort of thing and I think they yeah and actually remember one time someone asked me like what sort of future I wanted and actually being asked the question like that you're like actually I don't want to have a future where my life is dictated by food and calories and counting every single thing and not going out with my friends because there's so much fear but actually I think if you focus on that kind of freedom factor within it it can be really liberating terrifying but liberating Yes, it's that dichotomy, isn't it? It's just like so petrifying, but so liberating at the same time. Yeah, it's yeah, it's. I think sometimes that's the thing, isn't it, with recovery? I don't know, like whether your clients find this as well, but you get those fear factors throughout, don't you? So it's like you take a step, then you get really fearful, and then you're like, oh my goodness, what do I do now? And then it's like, no, this is good, this is what I want. But then you're constantly kind of, yeah, playing that kind of reminder with yourself. Absolutely. Were there moments where you felt hopeless, and 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 if so, how did you? How have you kept that hope alive? Yeah, I, there, there definitely has been. Um, so, I think the first, I think the first real time <clears throat> that I felt really hopeless was probably when I was in treatment, actually. Um, so I'd kind of accepted that I needed to have support, and accepted that there was something the matter with me, but I had no idea. I just had no idea how to shift it. I had no idea how to kind of change that dynamic. And the thought of having a day where I wasn't thinking about food or stressing about it or anything like that, I was like, I'm never, ever going to be able to do that. And for me in that moment, it was it was literally about just sitting with all of that hopelessness, telling someone that I felt like I was never going to get well, but being like, I'm going to take a little bit of a risk with it um, and trying to keep moving forward with it. I think... Along my, the rest of my way, like kind of along the rest of my journey, there have been other points where I got so frustrated with the eating disorder because of those feelings of hopelessness. And mm-hmm. like, and sometimes I think for me, it was more like, I felt like I was back to that narrative again. I felt like there was something that mattered to me because I couldn't go out and have certain foods with my friends or I couldn't explain to people why I found certain things challenging with food. And that feeling there where there's something that matters me and then I felt hopeless because I didn't know how to shift it but actually over time in those moments a lot of it for me was actually just keep challenging the behaviors Mm. sit with the uncertainty kind of I journal an awful lot so kind of journaling my way through it Mm. and then I think sometimes as well like you have those days whether you've had an eating disorder or not where you feel just like I'm ever going to be okay again Mm. and in those moments for me again it's about 
I look at the evidence where I'm like, actually, do you know what? I've got through this before. I know I can do it again. Um, <clears throat> I always remind myself that some people won't understand what I'm going through and that's okay. And it doesn't matter that not everyone does as long as the key people in my life get it and can support me through that. Um, on my days that I do feel like that, I always have to make sure that I get dressed and wash my hair and clean my teeth, like just kind of keep those levels of hygiene up. It's really, really important because for me, that doesn't help my mood at all. And then always trying to book a couple of really nice activities to kind of, again, motivate me to keep to keep doing what I'm doing. Um, but it's hard. And it's, it's, I think it's interesting because I think we all have to find our own ways of dealing with that hopelessness. And I think for a lot of us, we're looking for those kind of quick fixes where we're like, like, oh, if I just do this and everything will be fine. Or we buy all these. I remember I bought so many self-help books at one point mm-hmm. about six years ago when I was like, oh, my goodness, like if I just buy all these self-help books, then there's going to be a magical solution in some of them. And we're all looking for that magical solution, this overnight kind of light bulb moments. And we're so desperate for it. And I think that fuels a lot of the hopelessness that we all feel. Mm. So I think sometimes we just have to think, actually, do you know what, what is going to work for me in this moment? How can I do something to show myself a little bit of that compassion and kindness and just try and kind of, yeah, get through the day knowing that if I talk about it, if I find my support network, that actually maybe something will start to shift. Um, and I think the really big thing with <clears throat> eating disorders is when you have those days of hopelessness, however difficult it feels and however comfortable it feels, we have to, like, there's no argument about it. We have to just keep eating enough throughout that day, even if it feels uncomfortable. Because I think as soon as you start to feel hopelessness, there's this temptation to go back to those behaviors and get that instant relief. And I know that I've done that in the past. And in the long term, it doesn't help anything. It just kind of pulls you back in, kind of cutting those corners a little bit. So I think for me, like a big thing is always making sure on those days, even if it's hard, to have some routine and structure around the food. Mm, I could not agree with you more. Have you come to a place of acceptance with your body? Um, yeah, so I, I think I had. Um, and I'm now uh, six months pregnant. So having to kind of navigate that is a whole other minefield in one sense from, yeah. And I think that's more, I think for me, that's less about the eating disorder now and more about the fact that every single person that you come into contact with pretty much will comment on whether your bump's too big, whether your bump's too small. Even people like yesterday, I didn't, this woman that I'd never met before felt the need to comment on it. And you know, when you're just like, that's just not okay. Um, so I think because of that, it's made it slightly harder actually mm. to kind of accept with my body changing. And I think also with pregnancy, there's a whole other unknown about what your body will be like afterwards and mm. just things like that. So I think I'm working at the moment through a lot of that stuff, actually. But I think for me with my body, I've definitely had moments where I've been totally fine with it and not really thought about it. And normally for me, that's when I'm in a really good space mentally. And when I'm out there doing kind of fun stuff with my friends, kind of going out, that sort of thing to kind of, and I guess part of that is it's a distraction thing. It probably helps me to feel like I'm part of something I don't know so anything like that probably within that you probably anyone could probably read into that um, but I think for me a big thing was actually understanding that for me my body image is often like an expression of my feelings and my emotions and so when I was able to start to understand that actually on really difficult body image days it was because something else was going on again it helped me to accept that my body was the way it was and I think 
a big thing for me over the probably over the pandemic actually was also just being very mindful of what I look at online. Mm. I think often at the moment, <clears throat> and I think this is something that's a global thing actually, we have all this pressure from modern society to look a certain way. And <clears throat> whilst we know that bad body image doesn't necessarily cause an eating disorder, we know that they are intrinsically linked in some situations. So I think for me, it was like, actually, if we're diversifying what we're looking at, if we're being really mindful of the impact of society on us, then actually, hopefully that will shift some of those kind of feelings about my body and help me to accept it. And I think, I think for me now, I probably am at a space, although I'm working through stuff with my pregnancy and my body changing, I think it's, I'm now realizing that actually people don't change their opinion of me based on my body. And they just don't like <clears throat> I don't walk into a room and judge everyone else's body and gravitate towards someone with a particular type of body and no one else is going to do that to me so I think getting to that space for me has has been really really important actually and you recently wrote an article for Grazia magazine where you talked about um your pregnancy um and what it's what it's like to to, to have be, be pregnant when you when you've had an eating disorder um could you share a little bit more with our listeners about what some of those challenges have been so far? You've mentioned a few of them. Have there been any <coughs> challenges that you've come across as you've sort of journeyed uh, pregnancy thus far? Yeah, so it, it's been, a, honestly, it's been a real learning curve. I think I think part of it for me was really challenging because I wasn't expecting it at all. Um, so we, we weren't planning to have a child this quickly. Um, and whilst we're really, like, obviously really happy about it and I'm really grateful that I can have children, actually it was such a shock that I think the first thing to me was actually adjusting to that shock realizing that my life was probably going to change quite substantially over the next kind of nine months and then again kind of moving forward quite quickly would change as well and so I think that's been a big thing I think something I guess linking to the body aspect is there is a lot of uncertainty and a lot of unknowns about pregnancy and I think for me, a huge thing with my eating disorder was it gave me that sense of certainty over these situations where there was a lot of fear, there was a lot of emotion. And so navigating that has been really challenging in places. And I think from a mood perspective, I know in the past that I would have probably used food or exercise to manage my mood, particularly if I was finding things harder. But when you're pregnant and also in recovery, you have to get to a space anyway, regardless if you're pregnant or not, where you can sit with those emotions a little bit more. And so I think for me, actually learning, learning to sit with stuff has been really, really challenging. I think I've definitely had moments where I felt like it's really, really difficult. And even over the last few weeks, I've just felt like I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I want to do it. Um, like your body changes at such a pace in places that you're like, I don't know how I'm going to deal with even this changing all the time. Um, and then also you're not, I guess, from an exercise perspective, like you can't, you can't go and exercise as much when you're pregnant. You, some people probably say they can, but I don't think it, I don't think, I don't think you can personally. Um, and I think the aftermath, your life will change and you're not going to be the kind of priority in your life. Technically, you've got someone else that you have to be looking after too, which is great but learning how you're going to fit that in and deal with that. And I think a big thing for me is, and a lot of my, a lot of my kind of, yeah, a lot of my time I spend working and actually getting to a space where you have to realize that you're not going to be able to work quite as much probably, or you're going to have to change again, your priorities around that and how that's going to fit in. Um, and I think as well, I've, 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 I guess I've struggled with the expectations that I've put on myself and the expectations that again, society puts on yourself. I remember even just probably, I don't know, a couple of months in, I would spend hours on social media when I couldn't sleep, 
just scrolling and comparing and you find yourself on this rabbit hole of looking at your bump and someone else's bump and it's just not healthy so I've had to be really really strict with myself on on all of that I think the positive is I have been very lucky I get a lot of extra uh, like uh, extra support so I have some extra mental health support now which is really helpful Um, and I have a consultant that I see kind of weekly to kind of again offer a bit more insight to help kind of yeah I guess guide me a little bit more as well so I feel really lucky that I've, I've got access to that and it's strange because if you if you struggled with an eating disorder in the UK and you didn't fit into a kind of certain mold you wouldn't be able to access that support but as soon as you're pregnant the kind of support aspect changes quite a bit and it actually becomes where I am it becomes very very good which is amazing so I'm kind of doing what I can to utilize a lot of that and also I think setting myself up so that when the baby is born, it will, I'll be able to, I guess, look after myself within that too. And mm. I guess part of that's an honesty thing, which we've already talked about with people around me, but also making sure that I know where I'm putting pressure on myself and where I can kind of cut that pressure a little bit and what the support networks around me might look like afterwards too. Um, and surrounding yourself, I think, with the people who, who get it, who don't put that pressure on you, who don't judge you, who you can ring up and say, do you know, I'm having a rubbish day. And whether you're pregnant or not, you need those people in your life anyway. So I think it's like establishing who that could be. I think that's such valuable advice for any listeners out there who, um, you know, have an eating disorder history and are in trying to get pregnant or, or are already pregnant. Um, and I would really advise them to read that article that you wrote for Grazia because I think it's, um, I think it's a really, really fabulous one. And I really applaud you for sharing, you know, sharing your story on that because I know I have I have lots of clients um, who who found it really helpful when I when I shared it with them. So thank you. Oh, cool. No, thank you. No, I think it, it's really hard, and I think no one, I think nowhere in recovery do they set you up for dealing with what it's like to be pregnant mm-hmm. with an eating disorder. And I think for me, I, I actually thought, and I said this the other day actually to my other half as well. I thought that when I was pregnant, everything would just go away. <laughs> it would just be fixed. And you're like, that's not the reality. I wish it was, but it's just not. So it is, yeah. And I think actually a big thing, which I kind of think is important as well for everyone probably, is working out kind of the triggering situations that you might have. Mm. So we all have those situations in life that trigger us, and whether you're pregnant or not. And I know for me, some of my triggers have changed throughout my pregnancy. And it's like, actually, do you know what? I can put that boundary in place around those people who trigger certain emotions or yeah and just trying to be I think really honest again with those people to be like you know what I can't I can't do that today because I'm not in a great space but yeah just having that honesty is is key throughout and knowing how to deal with those triggers when they come up. Mm, So so important. Now let's talk about dump the scales. So I want to know what motivated you to start the campaign and what was the reaction to it? Yeah so um so kind of, I guess back in 2016, um, I tried to access support when I relapsed and wasn't able to um, because I wasn't underweight. And at the time, I, I didn't really think much of it. I was, I was really angry. I was frustrated. I, I felt like I, that was a hopeless moment. I felt really, really lost and just like, what am I going to do? I'm never going to get through this. Um, and I had this kind of four-week period where life just felt really impossible to navigate. I was kind of just crying kind of quite a lot of the time when I was on my own and I was feeling really suicidal a lot of the time and just that constant kind of chatter in my head was just unbearable. I ended up going on antidepressants um, because there was no treatment out there for me and I couldn't afford to go private and get that kind of additional support that way. 
And it was when I came through that kind of relapse period, I started to speak up a little bit more about my experience. I think part of that was that I was so frustrated with how things were done in the UK. But then as I looked kind of broader, it became an issue that actually this is something that happens all over the world. People with eating disorders just aren't taken seriously unless they fit neatly into this kind of BMI bracket. And that isn't just from a kind of government healthcare perspective. It's, it's the whole of society. People think that if you look okay, then everything's fine. And it's, it's, it's really, really frustrating because we know that eating disorders are mental health issues. They're not about what someone looks like. You can't judge the severity based on a person's BMI. And I remember I did a talk um, about my experience to, um, actually it was at the NSPCC um, here. And someone asked me in the kind of the Q&A bit at the end, like, what am I going to do to challenge that? And I was like, so taken aback by the question that I kind of like fobbed my way through an answer and was like, yeah, I'm going to do something on this. Like, it'll be fine. And then I kind of left and was like, do you know what? I actually should do something on this. And I was hearing more and more stories of people not getting support. I was like seeing it through my own research, kind of through networks. It was, it was just ridiculous. And so, yeah, launched the Dump the Scales campaign, which originally started off with this focus on trying to scrap BMI when it came to diagnosis, um, trying to make sure that there was a real understanding of eating disorders um, so that people weren't constantly getting judged like that. And then over like the last couple of years, it has kind of become much bigger in that respect to like, particularly in the UK, kind of looking at issues around funding, kind of making sure that's adequate to meet the demand, but also making sure that we've got the right training in place, that people have a comprehensive understanding of eating disorders. And I think a huge thing is it's that with eating disorders, it's often that stigma. They're still one of the most stigmatized illnesses. We we still, like I said, based them on people's physical appearance. We still think it's a choice. Particularly here, we have this whole narrative all the time that people will grow out of an eating disorder. So it only affects kind of white teenage girls. But actually, we know that's just so inaccurate. And I think as well, statistically, only 6% of people with an eating disorder are actually underweight. So it's a completely inaccurate measurement. Um, so at the moment, yeah, kind of pushing a lot around the kind of stigma aspect, but again, kind of the funding and making sure we're kind of resourced in the right way. And yeah, it, it's been good. I think at the beginning, um, for the first couple of weeks, it was like just didn't, nothing was really happening with it, if I'm honest. And I was kind of like, maybe I shouldn't have done this. Um, like, I don't know. And then kind of gradually began to pick up momentum. And it's, it's yeah, I think right now it, we're doing like it's doing okay. We just before the pandemic, I went to Downing Street with it for like the first time and there was so much kind of chat about it. There was so much momentum and we kind of got a lot of policy stuff kind of really starting to progress. And then obviously the pandemic happened and here in the UK, the pandemic has basically become this kind of get it. I don't know. And it's important like we need to talk about it, but I think so often the government hides behind the pandemic and a lot of people don't realise that actually eating disorders were a huge issue before the pandemic. And yes, they've been massively exacerbated during the pandemic, but actually they were there before. And there's a lot of people who are still functioning at a high level with an eating disorder without any support who are desperate to get well. So I think for me at the moment, it is about trying to get that kind of momentum with it going again and um, kind of working, I guess, yeah, working hard over the last year to try and get the government to realise here that actually we, we do need to do more. And just because they've got guidance in place doesn't doesn't actually mean that people are getting the right support at all um, too. So yeah, at the moment it's, yeah, it's, it's doing okay. We 
I kind of, I launched another report just before Christmas, I think it was, looking at the economic cost of eating disorders in the UK, um, which has been done, I think, in the US as well, actually, which calculated that eating disorders are currently costing kind of 11, just over 11 billion pounds a year, um, kind of on uh, carers' costs, on kind of costs to pay for hospital tickets, like loss of hours, loss of productivity, loss of life. Um, and then most recently, I'm kind of working a lot with the Prime Minister's office, looking at actually what this might look like moving forward. But but like all of this stuff, we need to have funding. We need to have like a timeline of implementation. We need strategies written. And it's no good waiting, I don't know, five, six years to kind of tackle this stuff because people die like every day of an eating disorder and they shouldn't be. Mm, mm. It's like we've got no time to lose and it's the same here in Australia. There's there's no time to lose. You know, there needs to be action now. Yeah. And I don't think they get that level of urgency. Like <clears throat> I often say it's like an emergency. It, it is an emergency mm. in some respects. We've got people who are unable to access any sort of treatment. And like I said, they're dying. But also we know um, that people are often being left on general hospitals. Mm. In the UK, we have a huge issue around workforce where no psychiatrists are really training in eating disorders. And I think part of that is because people are going private a lot of the time, but also because of the stigma again. Mm. And that kind of real lack of understanding around eating disorders kind of broadly is just costing so many people. Mm. Oh, it's an absolute crisis. It's a crisis worldwide. Um, Yeah. And I think it's so important that we use our lived experience and we speak up. Um, And I I think that unless we continue to um, shake things up and speak up, then again, things just get delayed and things fall under the radar because it's not in people's faces. And I think this is the thing, unless you're, you know, experiencing an eating disorder yourself or you have a connection with it, with a loved one who's also on that journey, it's very, very easy to sort of be shocked by it at first and then move on with your life, um, mm. And as it is for the politicians who haven't got a personal connection with it. Um, but, you know, when you're living and breathing it every day, whether you're working in it or, you know, you've got a loved one or you're actually in, in the trenches yourself, that urgency is just, it's, it's huge. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I think that's one of the things with... Awareness Weeks, actually, going off on a bit of a tangent. And whilst I really think Awareness Weeks are really important, I think there's so much of the time you have this kind of focus on it Mm. and then it just stops. And it's like, no, actually, this is happening to people every single day. Just because this week is over, it doesn't mean that people don't live with this on a day-to-day basis, like you said. And and I think people don't often realise, actually, like how much of a person's life it can completely take over. And it is scary. Like I know when I was kind of in the grips of it, it would dominate my everyday thinking. And I like couldn't engage in conversations with people without thinking about food or exercise. And and then there was all these arguments at home all the time. So kind of that pressure again on my family. And then my family would have to still be going to school or going to work. And it kind of adds this whole other layer. And I often, I think it's a bit like kind of a hurricane just kind of coming in and it affects every single person around that individual who is struggling but we don't often realise that. And we think, again, that if someone looks healthy or someone's happy one day, then maybe the eating disorder's completely gone away. But actually, <clears throat> that person is probably still really, really struggling. And and we'll be, I think, again, kind of, I guess, linking that back to the whole pregnancy aspect that we talked about earlier. Again, there's a lot of people in pregnancy who end up relapsing after pregnancy because they've held it all together for the pregnancy, for the, to kind of keep the baby safe in some respects. And they get to the end of their pregnancy 
and they've had no way of expressing what's been going on or how they're feeling. And so they then start to go back to these other behaviours because they're so, I guess they're so worried about, yeah, what's going to happen, that uncertainty again. And it's a similar thing that we're seeing on a day-to-day basis across the entire country. People's lives are just, yeah, being completely taken over by these horrible illnesses. And they're seeing no way out because there isn't that support in place. And one of my actually biggest interests is that kind of, like I guess kind of what I would call the functioning adult with an eating disorder but obviously you have children as well people who are just functioning at a really high level with an eating disorder or an exercise addiction even without really knowing that something's going on and without kind of feeling able to kind of talk about it with anyone or maybe they've tried in the past and then it's not gone well so they've got a lot of the shame a lot of the stigma around that and I think again it's those individuals who perhaps could never afford to go private who just sit with that emotion and don't know what to do. Mm, absolutely, absolutely. It, it, it's it's scary. And I, I really resonate with your metaphor there around the hurricane. I always say it's sort of, it just rips through um, and there's that trail of destruction and that ripple effect mm-hmm. and um, the ramifications are, are huge. A huge for everybody yeah. who's who's involved, not just, not just the individual. And I think that's um, often so overlooked. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. And I know, I don't know what it's like in Australia, but here we don't offer a huge amount of support, if any support, to kind of siblings or kind of carers as well. Um, there is a fantastic organisation called Feast, who yes. do a 24 7 helpline, yeah, who are based globally. But apart from that, you, you find it very difficult to come in, yeah, come into contact with it. And I remember actually when I was unwell, like the effect on my younger brother particularly was, was just huge. And he'd sit with me at breakfast in the morning trying to get me to have something and would get like the brunt of the eating disorder in that moment. And then we'd kind of both go to school. And then I remember after um, I was in hospital, but my mum went away with my family and my little brother got really upset about coming back because he just didn't want to come back to the eating disorder. And when I heard about that afterwards, I felt so awful about it. And I think, like, obviously we can't feel bad about that because it was an illness, but at the same time, it, it does affect everyone around us. And often the people around us don't get the support they need like we do. I could not agree more. And, and support for siblings is something that I think... Um, and for carers too, but I think siblings definitely get overlooked a lot because I think often there can be carer support groups. But I think sometimes siblings need their own space to connect with other siblings who've got, um, you know, who, who are journeying it. Um, I think it's it, it's really, really important and something that I would love to eventually be able to establish, you know, a support group for, for siblings, definitely. Yeah. Um, now... What would be your advice to parents wanting to protect children against diet culture and body image obsession and um, you know the development of an eating disorder? Yeah, um, I guess firstly, you, it, it is really difficult. In all honesty, I think we live in a society globally where we've normalised eating disorder culture and normalised really unhealthy relationships with food and our bodies. Um, and I think it's important, firstly, to be aware of that. I think it's important to do your education yourself and actually understand where a lot of this messaging is coming from. Something that I'm seeing a lot of at the moment is a lot of these kind of wellness influencers all over Instagram and actually on TikTok too, probably. Um, I don't have a TikTok account, so I don't really, yeah. not aware. <laughs> um, but, um, and they kind of give you loads of diet advice, loads of fitness advice. And a lot of it's really, really inaccurate, but also a lot of it's really, really dangerous. And I don't think they mean to cause harm. 
But I, I think it does cause a lot of harm, actually. And we saw at the weekend actually a lot of stuff coming out around this kind of narrative around healthy eating and actually how that does kind of have potential to go on to kind of cause someone to develop an eating disorder. So I think whilst we cannot stop young people looking at wellness influencers, if we've got a person in our life who maybe starts to change up their diet habits or their fitness routine, and actually it's done in a way where it starts to become quite obsessive and quite controlling for them, actually that for me is when you kind of sit down with that person and think, do you know what, where have you got that information from? Why do you think it's kind of valid? Obviously doing it in a nice way and kind of having that open conversation with them to really check the source of that information, making sure that actually they're feeding their brains with the right stuff and the right information. Um, I think we need to be generally as a society, and this is for everybody, not just kind of parents and carers, but actually making sure we're being really mindful of diet conversation. And one of my pet hates is people who constantly talk about dieting and their bodies. And I don't think it's helpful for anybody, whether you've had an eating disorder or not. But actually, again, we know that a lot of people pick up those kind of conversations and then start to feel quite self-conscious, quite feel bad about themselves. So I think being really aware of that. And if you've got people in your lives who, like we've all got them, those family friends that just talk about dieting all the time. And it's, it's really frustrating. Or say things like, that's a massive portion, you shouldn't eat that. Or, oh, I can't believe you're going to eat that much today. Or I'm going to eat this because I'm not going to have dinner later. That kind of conversation, I think we just need to cut out and actually, yeah, move away from it because we don't realize the harm a lot of the time that it has. And I think from an education perspective, again, we need to be thinking about um, things around calorie counting. So we know that 25% of people who start calorie counting go on to develop an eating disorder. We know that 35% of people spend the rest of their lives with an unhealthy relationship with food in their body. And actually, those are quite stark statistics in some sense that actually they can have that lifelong implica implication for those individuals who maybe start to do it. So I think, again, kind of instead of getting cross with people if they start doing those behaviors, it is about kind of opening up that conversation, opening up that dialogue, understanding why they're doing it, whether something's triggered it, kind of what's been going on. Um, and then I think just kind of two more things, I guess, from the body aspect is making sure that you don't have things like scales in your house. I know people will probably disagree with me on that sense. But actually, again, we need to be really mindful of this obsession that we have with weighing ourselves. Whether you lose weight or gain weight or stay the same, for some reason, scales always make us feel really, really awful. So actually, again, kind of moving those out of that environment. And if you as an adult feel the need to have them in your house, like obviously that's completely up to you. But actually making sure they're out of sight from a young person, I think is, again, really, really important. And in the UK, we have this huge focus. I'm sure it's similar to kind of elsewhere in the world as well, where we do, and I don't know why we do it. It's currently like the, another one of the kind of issues that I'm trying to work out here. But we often weigh kids in schools and then kids will get a letter sent home kind of saying where they fit on the kind of BMI scale. And actually in some situations, kids will sit at the higher end of the BMI scale. And we know that the BMI is completely inaccurate measurement anyway. So I think if you've got a school that's doing that, actually, it's about getting your young person to realize that BMI isn't, isn't a thing to actually be judged on. It's not, an, it's not an accurate measurement in itself. But also if you can actually kind of write into the school and taking your kid out of that way in, is again a really, really big thing. And then the other thing I think is just being very mindful of how you as an individual are talking about your body. And if you're constantly putting yourself down or constantly kind of, yeah, berating yourself or judging yourself, then the reality is that those people around us are going to pick up on that. And 
it's, it's not going to be pleasant for them. It's not going to be pleasant for you either. So again, just being really, really aware of those conversations. Um, but I think, and I think a really big thing with eating disorders is remembering they're not about, they're not about the food there because something is going on for that person. So if you start to kind of see these diet things kind of slipping in and this kind of obsession with food kind of creeping in, if it, if your gut says that something's the matter, go with what your gut is saying and actually have that direct conversation, actually kind of ask them why they're feeling the way they're feeling and try and unpack that a little bit more because then you're more likely again to kind of prevent it escalating into something much worse. I couldn't agree more with everything that you have just said. <laughs> what is the most valuable thing that your eating disorder journey has taught you so far? That's such a good question. I think... I think how important communication is, actually. Um, and so speaking really honestly, I, I still find it difficult at points to communicate with people around me. I find it very easy to kind of share things that I've been through, kind of write articles, kind of talk about my experience. But I find it challenging at points to be really honest with those people around me and actually getting to a space where I can do that has been really, really key. And I think so much of the time with the eating disorder it was such a secretive thing that I was doing. And as soon as you start bringing those behaviors and those emotions out into the light, it becomes something that loses its power and loses its grip over you. So for me, yeah, the communication and learning how to communicate is being key. And I think a big thing is we're often told how we should communicate, but actually we need to, again, work out what works for us. I, I mentioned at the start, I journal a lot. So actually giving yourself that space to journal, if that's something that's helpful, if you find it difficult to have a conversation with someone, sending an email or a text to someone, again, that can be just as important and just as helpful as well. Um, and I think identifying people in your life that you can be really honest with, whether that is support groups, whether that's people with other kind of people with lived experience, you maybe aren't part of a support group with friends or family, but actually having those connections to allow you to that space to communicate so that you don't have to go back to the eating disorder behaviours as that kind of coping mechanism within it. Absolutely. And in your opinion, what are the best ways that uh, people can support someone who is going through an eating disorder? Um, yes, I think I think firstly remembering that the eating disorder is not about the food and the person could be eating and they could look healthy in your eyes, but they still might be struggling with things. So I guess just firstly, that reminder that we need to remember that this is a long journey and it takes time. Um, someone that I know often describes eating disorder recovery as a marathon, not a sprint, which I think, again, is really important. And actually, we need to have people alongside us throughout that entire journey, kind of offering us that support when we need us, giving us that kind of distraction, that kind of safe place. Um, I think really practically, um, if you've got someone that you know is struggling with an eating disorder, it's about offering them that distraction before meal times, after meal times. In some situations, it might be about having a bit of a routine in place around food. So actually having a conversation around what time meal times are going to be, kind of what that might look like. Um, and in particular, if someone's at the start of their recovery journey, I think it is about actually working out what that would look like for them so they can still be integrated into that kind of family or friend environment as well. And depending on where someone is in their recovery journey, there might be certain restaurants that they find slightly harder to go to. So again, kind of being quite adaptable, making sure that not all social activities are planned in restaurants, but actually they're also planned elsewhere doing other things. Um, and then I think making sure that you don't just see the eating disorder when you look at that person. I think so much of the time, 
the person's whole identity can become the eating disorder, which which isn't healthy for that person because it's then harder to break away from it. But also it means that you stop telling them things that are going on in your life. And people with eating disorders want to know what is going on in someone else's life. We don't want to just, yeah, just kind of just be the eating disorder or have no one talk to us about anything else but the eating disorder. So remembering that actually there is still more to that person and having that space, yeah, around to talk about other things. Um, Something that really helped me was having kind of happy memories being created. So for me, that was going for walks every couple of days with my mum. But we had this rule that we couldn't talk about food, hospital admission, kind of anything related to the eating disorder. But since then, and kind of since starting my own journey and being, I guess, an adult um, in some respects, it's been about actually having those happy memories with friends, kind of booking trips kind of doing stuff that yes may be slightly challenging and uncomfortable but actually kind of pushing myself to do that and I think when you start to do things like that you really start to get a bit more of a love of life back which which is so helpful in recovery kind of motivating and kind of keeps you going and then I think as well there I guess two more things I could probably give you loads but I'm trying to be limited um is being aware that certain times of the year might be quite challenging for that person as well and perhaps in those moments checking in with them a little bit more that could be whether it's a family event it could be a kind of season it could be whether someone's going through some sort of grief but actually realizing that when you have an eating disorder it's those moments that the eating disorder will use the kind of event or the grieving or the emotion to kind of pull that person back in So actually just reminding that person that, you know, it's probably going to be slightly harder, but actually you're kind of there if they need you and giving them that space. Um, And then a really big thing, which I think is honestly, it's something that I probably struggle with actually as well. So I'm a real fixer and I don't necessarily think fixing is a bad thing, but when you have an eating disorder, you don't want someone to come in and fix what's going on. You want someone to listen, someone to communicate with, someone who's going to ask you, how's your recovery going this week? What what are you focusing on? Um, kind of what can I do to support you in that space? And I think kind of just realizing you cannot fix someone is, is so, so important. Um, and then just one final one, actually, kind of on that fixing thing is when you've got someone, I think, who is further along in their recovery journey, you need to try and get to a space where you're encouraging them to challenge fear foods. And I think like one of my biggest mistakes in recovery was not challenging the fear foods kind of at a soon enough point. Um, and I think that's what we need to be getting to is actually having people around us where they can be like maybe at the start of each week or month and being like, right, what's this going to look like this month? Like what are the kind of, I don't know, X amount of fear foods that you might want to challenge this month and how can I support you doing that? And creating an environment that's safe for them to do that is, is really important. Um and then within all of it, just making sure that you're also getting the support you need. And like we've talked about already, the kind of lack of support for carers and kind of siblings, but also partners of people like who are with someone who's got an eating disorder. Again, just making sure that you're having that time out and realizing that, yes, probably some days you're going to shout, you're going to get frustrated. And whilst that isn't ideal, these things happen. And in those moments, it's sometimes like just walk away from that situation, give yourself the respite that you need and then kind of come back to it. Because if you don't do that, then I think we end up sitting with a lot of resentment and are just completely, yeah, probably more exhausted by the entire thing as well. Absolutely. Self-care and self-compassion where this is concerned is key. No, it is. And I think that's, yeah, I think for me, that's probably been another learning curve in my journey, actually. And even through the kind of work I do now, actually meeting people who, who find that self-compassion so difficult to do and you beat yourself up so much of the time already when you have an eating disorder. So 
again, kind of removing yourself from that situation, I think actually in those moments can be really, really important. Absolutely. And finally, what words of wisdom would you like to leave our listeners with, especially those who are still fighting the brave fight? I think don't don't lose hope that you can't recover. I think so much of the time we hear it from healthcare professionals, we hear it generally in society, we hear it from other people with eating disorders that recovery is about recovery isn't possible. But actually, I I believe that recovery is possible and. I think, like I said, I've probably got one or 2% left to go, but I know people who are fully recovered. And I think you have to hang on to that hope that at some point, it, it's hard, it's relentless, it's tiring. You might be exhausted all the time, but actually you can you can get fully well. And it's about kind of, I believe, striving for that and getting that support around you so that you can enable yourself to get to that point without, yeah, without giving up. You are truly amazing, Hope. I am so inspired by you and I know so many of our listeners will just love listening to this episode and it'll be one of those ones that they listen to again and again. Um, So thank you for joining me and, you know, I'm so thrilled for you that you're pregnant and all the excitement and although it's a challenge, it's also a very exciting time in your life and I'm I'm really happy for you and thank you for all the incredible work that you're doing with Dump the Scales and you really are a light in this world and and a testament to what it means to to use our lived experience to create change so thank you no thanks so much for having me it was so lovely to talk to you this is the end eating disorders podcast your financial support will save lives donate at ended.org.au i always used to think like how can people not hear what's going on in my head you get to that point where you just you just don't know what to do There is hope at ended.org.au.